Hello and welcome to Future Proofing Media Freedom, a new podcast series from Chatham House in collaboration with Luminate and the International Centre for Journalists. I'm Ben Horton, a communications manager at Chatham House and co-host of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. And I'm Julie Pizzetti. I'm ICFJ's Global Director of Research, and I've been a journalist now for three decades, ranging from broadcast and newspapers through to podcasts. I research and advocate at the intersection of media freedom and digital journalism, and particularly looking at disinformation and gender issues. And I also lead the Journalism and the Pandemic Project, which is a joint research initiative with the Tau Centre at Columbia University. And we're going to be unpacking that a bit in this series. That's right. We'll be exploring the challenges facing public interest media today, from financial uncertainty to the physical safety of journalists, and revealing some of the innovations that news organisations are pursuing to ensure their survival. And that's a challenge that's become much harder during the pandemic. Julie, you've been studying and writing about these issues for over a decade now. And and as you mentioned, with the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism at Columbia University, you've just published a new report as part of a wider project on journalism and the pandemic. So before we get into the interviews that we've got lined up, could you paint us a picture of what things look like for independent journalism in 2020 and give us a sense of how we got here. Yeah, well, it's been a wild uh, two decades, I guess, of transformation, (laughs) starting with the digital revolution that really initially upended business models. So we saw the erosion of, you know, the the rivers of gold that traditional media tycoons referred to as, as, you know, the money that flowed from advertising that allowed the kind of independent investigative journalism that we've seen over the past two centuries or so to flourish. And so with the digital revolution came very significant challenges initially to the business model. In parallel, we saw the rise of the audience as the tools for you know creating journalistic content or information of all sorts became broadly democratized so you know people who had the tools that were much easier to use and to publish online could do so and with the arrival of social media and the platform power era if you like where social media companies that we now refer to as big tech really allowed the development of a new information ecosystem where the audiences that had already begun to try to set their own news agenda, doing everything from interacting with journalists and actually contributing in really meaningful ways to the co-creation of news during that early part of the digital revolution. We then entered a period where distribution of news, along with the the failure of advertising as as a revenue source, really became very challenging and journalism outlets became very much more dependent on the platforms um, and subject to their whims, really, when it came to distributing content. So, you know, Facebook replaced the old truck, you know, (laughs) carting the newspapers around for delivery. So Mm -hmm. that was happening at a time when, and partly because of these issues, disinformation took a viral turn in conjunction with the rise of populism and, you know, this genuinely serious problem of online toxicity, which is undermining media freedom and journalism safety and just the Mm. right of people to have conversations publicly about issues that are central to democracy. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with everything from threats to democracy, as I just said, through to the erosion of media freedom and journalism safety threats that, you know, range from the expansion of the trend of murdering journalists with impunity becoming an issue that is not something that we talk about happening elsewhere as Western journalists and commentators, but, you know, it's now happening in Western Europe. It's it's happening in North America. And You know, and we have this extremely serious problem of online violence affecting uh, especially women journalists. So we were in this situation. In fact, I, I ran a panel discussion at the International Journalism Festival a couple of years ago called Journalism's Perfect Storm, which packed all of this together. <laughs> and what has happened since 2018 when that panel occurred is COVID-19 right? Uh, A pandemic, which has brought with it what we've called a disinfodemic, which has really created a super-headed environment in which all of these challenges have become much more intense. And in particular, what we're talking about today is this question of financial viability for independent news media, which are absolutely critical 
to you know ensure accountable governance in normal times but when you're dealing with a, a deadly and ferocious pandemic like COVID-19 it's become even more acute to focus on trying to ensure that news organisations that focus on critical independent journalism can somehow find a way to be sustainable. Now, you referred to that journalism and the pandemic project, which I'm running with the Tau Centre at Columbia University. And with them, we at ICFJ have just published a report which gives a global snapshot of some of the trends we're seeing in the first wave of the pandemic. And One of the most alarming was the evidence that um, our 1,400-plus respondents presented of a really serious financial and escalating financial crisis. So just to Mm. give you one data point to focus on, we had 17% of our participants in that survey, which was global, who had access to information about their news organisation's financial situation saying that the revenues that those organisations had declined by over 75% during the first three months of the pandemic. Mm. So that's an incredibly sobering statistic and it just gives you a sense, I think, acute sense of the struggle that that is before us to ensure that public interest media can somehow remain financially viable. What do you think has been driving that drop? What is the relationship between pandemic and this fall in investment? Well, you know, it's there's a dichotomy at play here because we saw at the beginning of the pandemic an increase of audience traffic right. to the journalism about the pandemic that they found reliable. And, you know, I, I started my career at the ABC in Australia, which is the BBC equivalent um, in Australia. And what we found as, you know, a public service media organisation was that in any kind of disaster, and Australia is, you know, full of them, so um, especially bushfires, you know, and other kind of calamities, people would flock to the what we call the national broadcaster, you know, just like the BBC, a trusted brand. People felt safe and secure. They wanted that connectivity, you know, with the presenters as well because it was a sense of community. Now, we've seen in our survey all of those sorts of experiences coming to the fore. So the journalists feeling an increased sense of commitment to their craft and, you know, their vocation to to deliver public interest information and their impression of the audience increasing its loyalty to that information. And that's borne out by other research that looks at increase in traffic, but it doesn't necessarily translate to an increase in either, you know, subscriptions or membership fees or Mm. other forms of revenue. And it certainly is not met by an increase in advertising revenue. So wherever news outlets are still dependent on uh, the advertising dollar, it's just, you know, their revenues have fallen through the floor. Because what happens when you are in a lockdown People can't go out. Uh, businesses are collapsing themselves. And so there is no money for advertising. There's much less money yeah. all around. Mm. Well, that's a pretty glum picture that you've painted there, Julie, but, but thank you for Sorry. the overview. <laughs> <laughs> and so over the course of these three episodes in, in this Future Proofing Media Freedom series, we're going to be delving a lot more into these issues with some really, really exciting guests. We're going to be talking about the impact of disinformation, which we've already touched on, and also how society can better protect the rights and physical safety of journalists. Those will be episodes two and three. But in this episode, which we're cheerfully calling a modern market failure, the struggle to publish news, we're tackling this market failure of news. Just a tiny question to kick off our series. And we'll be exploring international approaches to keeping public interest media viable in this time of escalating crisis. And to discuss all this, we're joined by Joyce Barnathan, President of the International Centre for Journalists, Nishant Nalwani, who's the Managing Director of Luminate, a philanthropic organisation empowering people to build fair and just societies, and Renata Rizzi, who's the Founder and Strategy Lead of Nexo, a groundbreaking news startup based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And to kick us off, we begin with a question for Nishant. So you lead Luminate's efforts to secure a new fund. Is it a billion dollars that you're aiming for, Nishant? That's right, yeah. Okay, so a billion-dollar fund for public interest media that's um, designed to help stem this decline of independent journalism that we're all concerned about. 
Some people have suggested it's a bit like a finger in the, the dike approach to a really big problem. But what made this collaborative effort necessary? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You know, why are we talking about launching a new institution in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, well, the main reason is it's hard to tie, think of a time in recent history where access to trustworthy information has been more important. Or in all over the world, people are seeking out credible, potentially life-saving news and information about COVID-19, how to respond. And, and meanwhile, there's a plethora of widely circulated misinformation and infodemic that's thriving. And so just as we need reliable information the most, public interest media has never been under greater threat and has never suffered quite as much as it is now. You know, there's a chronic crisis in media before the pandemic. The business model of journalism had really been undermined by digital advertising, the attention economy. But that chronic crisis has now turned into an acute one mm. with COVID. You know, the Reuters Institute estimates that news organizations will lose about $20 billion due to COVID. Um, and a $20 billion revenue loss would be, you know, a huge punch to the gut to news organizations at the best of times. But right now it could be, it could be crippling. So We've been working on this concept for the International Fund for Public Interest Media for more than a year now with an advisory group that includes experts and funders from all over the world. But when the pandemic hit, we realized we have to get this off the ground as quickly as possible, because even if we manage to limit damage to the media during the crisis, we're going to need to rebuild independent media in many, many countries uh, when all this is done. And the level of funding currently available for journalism is wildly insufficient even for pre-COVID journalism, let alone kind of a post-COVID decimated sector. So that's why we believe that now is the time to consider massively increasing the aid and philanthropic support to public interest media. And we think a kind of independent international fund is the right vehicle to allow that. And if there's you know, something to be said for a billion dollars injected at this point, it's that even against that Reuters Institute prediction of a $20 billion loss, a billion dollars provides, you know, much needed support for potentially many international news outlets or startups or even individual journalists, you know, depending on how the, the model is viewed. Just one thing I'd like to follow up on there, Nishant, is apart from the acceleration of your project in response to COVID-19, has anything else shifted just in terms of, say, the way you're thinking about where the most urgent needs are located, whether that's geographically or within certain media systems, for example, or what kinds of critical independent journalism in particular you are looking to support? Well, really, you know, there is journalism that can fund itself. You know, a lot of business journalism is profitable. A lot of uh, lifestyle journalism is profitable. But what's really been suffering is public interest news coverage, you know, news that allows people to make decisions and be informed about the things that affect their lives. Investigative journalism has suffered a lot, you know, journalism that holds power to account. Mm. And it's especially bad in countries where the returns on the advertising economy are very, very low. And that's why this international fund is focused on low and middle income countries, because there the revenues you're able to get from you know, YouTube or Google or Facebook are so low that it's impossible really for many organizations to survive. Very interesting. Um, I wonder if I could bring in Joyce now to this conversation. Joyce, uh, you've been at the helm of the International Centre for Journalists for 15 years now, and that's a period that coincides with a lot of the dramatic upheavals in news publishing that we're discussing today. Based on your experiences of helping journalists around the world to try to adapt their business models and practices, what would you say are the biggest challenges news organisations are facing? And do you get a sense that these vary around the world from country to country? Well, thanks for that question, Ben. In my 15 years, nearly 15 years at ICFJ, I've just seen one transformation after the next transformation after the next. I'm of the belief that news organisations have to see themselves in a massive state of reinvention all the time. And one of the things I worry about with infusions of money into journalism organizations is that we're not infusing organizations that aren't responsive to the new era that we're living in. We have to make sure that news organizations are going to be 
vibrant. And I think the only way they're going to be vibrant is if they're really responding to their communities. So the means of distribution has completely changed. I mean, I was just looking back at some numbers. Facebook just got started in 2004. I took over in 2006. Twitter was maybe two years later. YouTube was 2005 or so. The Apple App Store was 2008. I mean, you just think of life before the Apple App Store and all the different apps and just how you get so much news on your cell phone, whereas before you used to get it through traditional media. I mean, we're in the middle of a revolution. I just want to caution that we're not the only ones in the middle of a revolution. There are businesses across this world that have to keep reinventing themselves all the time. So this is a real trick. And yes, there's been, as, as Nishan said, huge decimation in revenue, advertising revenue for news. And there have been, I don't know, I, I haven't counted up how many jobs have been lost. I think the thing that distinguishes us is that we do play a public service. We're not a bricks and mortar bookstore where you can get the books online instead of in the store. We provide a vital, vital service. I think you have to look case by case because I do think that news organizations have to have innovation in their DNA. It has to be part of the way they think about things and not just continuing operations, but how do I keep innovating to make sure that my audiences, I'm serving my audiences, that my communities feel that I am essential. I'm not sure there's enough of that in news organizations, but I do see, you know, startups are happening. It's a very difficult time to be a startup. And we know that they've actually, uh, ICFJ survey said they're actually flattening out the number of new startups, but I'm still heartened by the fact that there are many. We just have to make sure that there are investments in the business side so that there are new models that we can think about. And in the survey that I just mentioned, I think 56% of news organizations around the world no longer depend on advertising is no longer the main source of revenue. So we're thinking about creative ways to bring in more money for journalism, but it is definitely not easy. I do think that the business side has to be beefed up everywhere. I do think that media organizations, media development organizations, support organizations have to be beefing up the, think about the business side as well as the editorial side. And I think the editorial side and the business side have to get together in a very concerted way to make sure that they can serve their audiences. So I do think this is a convulsive time. That said, I want to say one positive thing. The pandemic has been devastating, but there also has been a renewed sense of commitment by journalists for their profession. We are part of the frontline workers here. We are absolutely essential workers. We may not be healthcare workers and we may not be emergency service workers, but we are frontline workers because we are the ones informing the public about how to stay safe. Our information potentially saves lives. And I honestly believe that there, you know, I haven't polled the public. We have polled the journalists in our latest study on pandemic and journalism to show that 61% of journalists feel more committed. But I would not at all be surprised if trust in the media hasn't gone up in this time. And how do we take advantage of that? How do we build on that? And in my own personal view, I know that I have signed up for untold number of local sites now that I never would even think about doing before because I'm concerned about my health and I'm concerned about what's happening in my communities. And so if that's a trend, we just have to think about how to build on it. I I'm, sound like an optimist because I, this is what I do for a living and I, I want to make sure that we can tap into a variety of different ways to support journalism going forward. I'm just going to pick up on that, Joyce, because you referenced our new study just out, the Journalism and the Pandemic Project's first report, which is, a, as you say, a global survey of journalists. And you're right, we found that 61% of journalists indicated that they had a greater sense of commitment to their profession, a greater vocational commitment, which is really important to note. And you also touched on trust there. And one of the other things we found was that the journalists we surveyed, 43% of them, felt uh, or perceived that trust in their work had increased during the pandemic. You know, So there is something brewing there that we need to be able to understand and to capitalise on. But at the same time, literally just as you were speaking there, Mark Little, who is one of the world's you know, pioneering entrepreneurs in the uh, journalism space, 
tweeted at me, you know, unrelated to our conversation, but very timely, sharing a report I wrote when I was with the Reuters Institute called the Shiny Things Syndrome, which was all about, you know, the impact and cost of perpetual revolution and innovation uh, and how it's leading to fatigue and burnout at rates that are potentially making this perpetual change unsustainable. So I just wanted to come back to that point, given the prod from Mark there. An interesting point. You know, when I say innovation, it doesn't necessarily mean high tech and the latest shiny thing. It could be very low tech. We have helped support a citizen journalism mobile news network in which the news went out on SMS texting. Mm. That was a very low tech solution to getting the word out. Look, I think this pandemic, when we're over this pandemic, we're going to be in a new, a whole new world. Just think about telemedicine now. Telemedicine was nowhere before this pandemic. Now, I think a billion people have gone on and used telemedicine. We're talking about a revolution in, in a lot of things that are happening. So I do think that we have to keep thinking about the environment that we live in. And if we just continue to think that whatever the medium is that we're using, we can just do the same old thing, we are going to be dinosaurs. I, I, I certainly believe that. This last report that we've published as well underscores this, that perhaps the most innovative thing we can do is to reinforce the need for mission-driven journalism that's community-centred. And with that, Ben, I'm <laughs> going to hand back to you. Yeah, thank you very much. So I think now would be a really good time to bring in Renata Ritzi. Thanks for joining us, Renata. I wonder how we can fit your startup Nexo Journal into this into this conversation, um, particularly picking up on that community and sort of local mission aspect there. And I wanted to also sort of bring in this idea of the impact of tech platforms. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how Nexo has been approaching the practice of journalism and the practice of, of, of media and what particularly has been distinctive about your approach to this. And also whether you think social media platforms have been a useful tool for you, whether you think like sort of net they've been a gain for your organisation. How have you been responding to, to the risks and opportunities in, in that area? It's interesting. Joyce was mentioning the change in context that we have experienced and Nexo was launched in uh, the end of 2015. And that is a, it really is great that you know the context in which you're going to operate when you decide on your business model and your editorial model. Mm. It is really important for us that these two things go together. So we have an editorial model, we have a mission that we are super mission driven, but it's also our mission to be profitable and, and to you know have a very transparent uh, business model that works in this context. Having said that, Nexo has no ads. We're based on subscriptions from the beginning. We do not have advertisements in, in our site, really not at all. We don't have those revenues. We do have a diversification of other revenues, so events, courses, consulting for not-for-profit organizations. We sell content to educational publishers, uh, all those things. It's really important that we diversify. We saw that now with the pandemic, how important it was. But the focus really was on subscriptions from the beginning. And that I'm saying that because you know there's a lot of, of different things that happen to you as an outlet when you don't have ads at the current context. So one thing is that you have very good incentives to produce quality journalism, value-added journalism to your readers, to convert subscribers, to, to retain them, to, to keep them uh, happy. You do not have any, almost any incentives to produce just clickbaits, catchy titles, things that are really you know, now starting to talk about the social media. You know, it, it is very different how we navigate. We have a very good relationship with our readers and social media. It, it is crucial for our distribution, for engagement. It's also a very big risk. We all as organizations are at risk because it's super monopolistic. It's not transparent. It's not regulated. And it's a very excessive power. So we can do without them. We don't know what can happen tomorrow. It's out of our control. On the other hand, Nexo doesn't have the problem that many other outlets have, which is, you know, how much they got from the ad revenues in the world. So that doesn't make any difference for us. And it also on the trust sense that has also been um, quite affected by their existence, that is also less affecting Nexo when you think that we don't do the distribution of our content in a way that will maximize shares and audience and traffic to our website. 
And that changes very much the perception because the public does perceive those small differences in how different outlets operate in terms of, of business. It was very crucial, though, for our organic growth from the beginning. Being new, nobody knows us at the starting point. And so yeah. it's absolutely crucial to be on, on social media and to get their distribution. It used to be even easier around 2010, 2011. It was like very easy to grow fast. Then they made it more restrictive. And if you want mm -hmm. to grow really fast, you have to pay. But in any case, it was super important. And it still is. We do distribute through there, we do engage through there, we do use their platform as advertisement, advertisers ourselves, so to target, retarget, retain, that's basically our relationship. But we certainly think that we are all at risk with this excessive power that they detained, for sure. That's a really important analysis. And I think, you know, we can all cast our minds back to, say, 2010, when we were talking about the democratizing power of social media and indeed how particularly a platform like Facebook was able to give a startup news organization incredible exposure and engagement. In fact, that is how one of Facebook's biggest critics, Maria Ressa, uh, in the Philippines launched Rappler, of course, in 2011 as a Facebook page. But, you know, now we know that it really is a double-edged sword. And you're in a country where polarization and attacks on press freedom and disinformation are all rife. So I'd just like to hear from you, Renata, about how you try and address those very serious risks of what I sometimes call platform capture, where, you know, you, you have to be reliant on the platforms for distribution and engagement to an extent. But you're also exposed via those platforms to online violence and, and viral disinformation and the sort of targeted attacks that go with that. It is quite challenging times. Independency is a is very important value right now. And we are super transparent about our independence, about mm -hmm. our shareholder structure, about our business model, our revenues. And, and that is crucial in the sense that our ethical standards are something we are always going to defend and we do nothing. We leave money on the table, but we don't do anything that hurts those standards. And having that makes us more resilient when we think of, you know, all the potential attacks that do take place in, in this country and so many other countries, unfortunately. That is how we believe we should cope with this, by being very resilient. The way we protect our journalists is through not really exposing them. So the brand is Nexo, everything, you know, the face there is Nexo. Uh, we don't do individual journalists posting for us. We don't do that. And, and there have been attacks, uh, individual attacks, unfortunately, but we are really trying to protect them in that sense, being just uh, one brand, which is Nexo. And having this very horizontal relationship with the audience, we get defenders as well. So, you know, sometimes there are attacks, but there, there's on, on another side of readers actually who are defending next. So because of this sense of independence that they get from us, it is really the, the most crucial value right now is, is independence, I, I believe, and, and we truly are. So Renata, you're saying that independence as a value, independence as, a, as, a, as an ethical concept is profitable potentially, at least insofar as your community, your audience uh, feel invested in your brand and, and defend your brand. Absolutely. It is crucial when you have, specifically when you have the, the, the business model we do, which is really reliant on subscriptions, and, and that's what we really focus on for the long term. The perception is everything. So, you know, that they identify with our mission and they know that we are actually not being captured by platforms or by the government and that we really are there to provide them with balanced information, uh, with that service, with quality journalism, and that's it. That makes all the difference when you're trying to, to convert a subscriber, which is actually what we do. It is quite commercial. Not that we are purely ideological, but it is important for us to be profitable, but in an ethical way. We, we want to, to prove that. We were on track to break even this year. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit, but it is for us very clear that it is possible to you know, focus on consumer revenues, not on ads and on other practices. There are so many branded content and there's so many, uh, you know, 
content recommendation engines and, and those other revenues that come mm-hmm. and that are getting more and more important to, to players, we, we don't rely on them. We, all we do, we diversify, but we all try to, always trying to, to, to do stuff that has to do with our core and with our mission and not other stuff, focusing really on, on that. As you said, it seems profitable to go on that path. I also believe it is really a good long-term strategy. So trust is a commodity. <laughs> Nishant, I think you want to comment on this. Yeah, I just want to say that I couldn't agree with Renata Moore and Nexo's approach. You know, we at Luminate are huge admirers of Nexo. And one of the reasons is because their innovation is really changing the model of journalism away from one where advertising is the key source of revenue to one where, you know, readers are directly paying for the products that they value. To us, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when advertising pays for journalism, the incentives are not to serve the public interest. The incentives are to serve the advertiser's interest. And that's when you end up with clickbait, you know, highly biased news, news that induces rage, you know, and you want to share rather than news that can actually serve your interest as a reader. If uh, a third party is paying for your news, then you may be being sent information that Others want you to believe. That's when you have propaganda. And that's when you have disinformation or another agenda that isn't correlated with yours. So reorienting the value proposition of journalism away from third parties and back towards those people who are supposed to benefit from that journalism is an incredibly important movement. And you're seeing it with membership models of journalism like Nexo, um, like the Ken in India, like the Correspondent. An interesting aspect of this is that, of course, the marginal cost of distributing news is very, very low, right? Once you've produced journalism, you can have certain people who pay for it and other people who can enjoy it and use it even without paying a premium. So, for example, the correspondent in the Netherlands, they have 60,000 paying members. But as a member, I can share their journalism with non-members. And in fact, they have 3 million people reading De Correspondent every month. That's about 17% of the Dutch population. It's an enormous number, but only 60,000 people pay. And so you can have a model where you have sustainable journalism and yet you still have wide reach. And they also have such a nuanced and radical approach to storytelling and, and news that's so representative of diversity, for example, you know, before this was actually uh, an important buzzword in the mainstream media, they were um, really focusing their efforts on that. Joyce, can I just ask you to follow up on this point? Because connected to scale of audience, questions around, you know, niche versus scale and independent journalism and the, the ethical values that underpin that is impact. You know, you have to be able to achieve some form of impact. So, that can take different forms. What, what do you think about in terms of, you know, the sustainability of journalism regarding impact? Well, one of the things that I was going to say is that I think news organizations have to do a better job of measuring their impact. And I think it is a heartening thing to see news organizations going to subscription models. It's something the New York Times did. It's something Nexto is doing. I mean, you are closer to your audience. The market distortions aren't getting in there to create all this clickbait, which I know all about from my past work life. But I do think if we had a Knight fellow from Brazil who created something called Impacto, and it was a great tool to figure out what is the impact of the journalism that we're doing. So he would basically find, he, he had all of these databases that were digitized And he'd look for mentions of stories or reference to the stories and see, you know, maybe two years later, a court case referred to this story that happened, or maybe an investigation came from this story that was mentioned. And I think that when you're doing your subscription models, telling the impact of the work that you're doing has that much more meaning to your community. So if we can find new and better ways to capture that impact... I think we will help beef up uh, subscriptions and also maintain subscriptions because people will, you know, people will say, hey, I want to I want to end my subscription. Well, did you know that next door or down the street, we helped do a story that did this, this, this. So I just think when I'm talking about innovation, I think we have to think about new ways of measuring impact to help amplify the support for for journalism. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I've sort of got a question which actually could go to any of you, I think, just given this particular thread on the different models that we have to monetize the media that you're creating. I suppose my question is, is this a process that media organizations alone can achieve? Particularly maybe Nishan, if you want to come in on this. Obviously, we're talking about the effects of social media organizations, like multi-billion dollar companies with, with huge, huge audiences who are to a great extent being led to believe that content can be completely free at the point of use. And while there are these excellent methods and, and different sort of tactics for remodeling this that specific news organizations are coming up with, I suppose my question is, is the genie kind of out of the bottle? Is it too late because of the way that social media is changing audience expectations about access to content? Is this something that journalism can solve on its own or would we need to have a sort of multi-stakeholder approach to saying no you can't just expect all of your content to be free so i don't think that it's too late and i don't think that we should accept that free content is the future free is a price in of itself and the price you're paying is that you're selling uh, more often than not your data and your eyeballs on the journalism, or in fact, on any content that's being pushed through the attention economy. So I think part of the onus is on journalism organizations and media organizations to innovate, as Joyce was suggesting. You know, membership models of journalism show a lot of promise because they go one step beyond subscription or paywall models. And what they do is they promise not just content, but also a relationship with the journalist or with the newsroom. Uh, in true membership models, uh, as a reader, I can provide my feedback. I can learn about the way that editorial decisions are made. In the case of the Bristol Cable in the UK, I can be legally part of a cooperative where I can attend town hall meetings and opine on what editorial decisions are made and how they should be shaped. And so there, you're not just selling words or content, you're selling the relationship to the journalist and to the newsroom. And that's a phenomenally promising model, I think, to carry forward. It also builds on, you know, some of the great work done in the 90s, what we used to call public journalism, you know, that Jay Rosen pioneered and that Alan Rusbridger at The Guardian took forward into the, into the digital age with, you know, acknowledging all of the risks <laughs> that come with that digital age that, you know, 10 years later we're now focused on and have to navigate but that relationship with audience and that community service is really what we're talking about getting back to. Can I just ask you, Renata, in terms of where you're at right now, two-thirds of the way through an utterly chaotic year <laughs> that, you know, we couldn't have imagined 12 months ago, you thought you were going to break even and now the pandemic's arrived. So how have you responded to that? What have you tried to do? What measures have you put in place have you had to change your operations and your funding model? Just to share some insights of, about how you're trying to ride through this storm. We had to change it a little bit. It was not our choice, actually. But as I said, in the beginning, almost all our revenues were subscriptions. And then uh, through time, we were able to diversify, which was really very good strategy, considering how the pandemic came and hit and having no advertisement as well. Uh, so we didn't lose those revenues. And subscriptions actually went up when it all started. But subscriptions, they grow gradually. Even when they're growing, it's not like, you know, sometimes there's the Trump bump, but it's not something that always happens. Uh, but we did appeal to subscribers and we saw, you know, a lot more people converting. All the other lines of revenue, so all those which were live stuff, you know, events, courses, we of course tried to switch to a virtual mode quickly, but it, it, it was a challenge definitely. And it's also more difficult to, char to charge and all those things. And so we focused on the subscriptions and on special projects. So we launched a platform which is called Nexo Politicas Publicas, so Nexo Public Policy. And for that platform, we received grants, which you know helped a lot uh, finance ourselves uh, through these months. And we are now negotiating something like a bridge investment uh, to get us through the other side of this and potentially finally break even then and, and then try to, to do a bigger round of investments. But basically what at the beginning, it was very scary when you don't even know how bad the, the worst case scenario can be. 
But we were able to really focus on those revenues that could come at big chunks at that moment, while, of course, appealing to readers to subscribe and, and, and support Nexo through those times. We were very quick to launch new products related to coronavirus, and uh, we're really proud of that. It's amazing how the, the newsroom and all the staff was working together to make this effort happen super quickly. And, and we were very proud, and it, it proved to be also very... Uh, admired by our audience and, and that I believe also helped very much audience growth and subscription growth through this time. And have you had to rely in an increasing way on philanthropic investments? And I suppose the sidebar question is, have you have you taken funding from the platforms in this environment, which is of course another trend? We have, yes. We have from the beginning invested our own money at Nexo and we are transparent about that. With time, we received a grant from Luminate, and that was in 2018. And from time to time, the platforms, they offer money for us to implement projects that are related to their products and to you know, make them happen also in our outlet. And, and we do those, not all of them, but many of the projects we do participate and, and they do subscription workshops. You know, They also do those things to try to improve, in special for for traditional media or very new outlets, the, the technologies that are already known and for them to learn and, and implement. So th- that is uh, something that, that does happen. With Nexo, we don't rely on that sort of funds. Uh, so it's not that some organizations are only based on, on, on grants. It's totally not what we do. It's always related to a certain project. So, you know, to fund the diversity project in journalism that we are starting at the newsroom and we want to expand to the whole industry in Brazil, then we sell that. We now are thinking of a new project that is very uh, linked to investigative journalism. And for that, we, we seek funding. And, and those are actually uh, the bigger grants we receive. So for those uh, sorts of projects. But, but those are, are not a very big part of our revenues normally. They were now with COVID. Joyce, I wonder if I could get your take on this question of philanthropic activity in this space. Obviously, Renata's told us a lot there about how grants have functioned within their business model. But do you think that the media industry relying on philanthropy is something we should be worried about? Or what would you say is the kind of ideal role that philanthropic organisations would play in this space? Well, I'm happy to see philanthropic organizations understand the importance of uh, free and independent media and getting support from them, I think is great. There is, a, there is a, of course, a danger of being overly reliant on any kind of income from anyone except for your own subscribers and the like. But I would like to see that trend accelerate. And Luminate is a very good example. I mean, we have a great program called Velocidad, which is based on trying to help Latin American digital media outlets become financially sustainable. And I think that I'd love to see, you know, it's it's still in the midst of the of the program, but I'm very hopeful that this could present a model for other philanthropic organizations to come in and see what we can learn and what are best practices and what is effective and how do we diversify models. You know, I want to talk a little bit about investigative journalism in this sense, because, you know, somebody mentioned that this is taking a huge toll on investigative journalism. It did take a huge toll on investigative journalism. And when I was in the newsroom and, you know, they're starting to cut back, the first people they want to cut back on are the investigative journalists, mainly because they're very high risk, but high reward. And so they could work on a project for a year before they see anything. And at the time, there was pressure to get your story out on this platform and on that platform and on this platform and quick. And, and it was did not appeal to investigative journalism. I think there's been a big change overall with investigative journalism because investigative journalism is what gets rewarded. It moves the needle. It changes society if you do really good investigative pieces. It's your proprietary mark. And I think that news organizations understand that rather than push out the commodity news that they were all pushing out on all platforms. But to get back to philanthropic, there's been a huge proliferation of not-for-profit investigative journalism outlets from ProPublica, which was started by a banker, to many, many others. And I see them sprouting up and collaborating. The Panama Papers is is the ideal example of, it's not just starting them up, but it's linking them up because a lot of our problems are cross-border problems. 
whether it's drug trafficking, human trafficking, money laundering, and I would say even attacks on democracy, which I, it's a big thing that does keep me up at night, which we could talk about later. But, but I do see these groups starting up all over the place and getting traction. Now, whether they, they'll keep getting the money, I don't know, but they're certainly collaborating. They're certainly active. Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project is another. So I think that I'm a little bit heartened by the fact that foundations and organizations are getting behind a journalism and understanding that they need to support us, that it's money well spent, and that we will have impact as a result of these investments. So I'm not that fearful of, of foundations. You know, of course, you have to vet any foundation. I'm talking about no strings attached donations or contributions to help you really create strong, independent uh, news organizations. As someone who, who works in philanthropy, I will say that I think philanthropy is useful in supporting media in particular ways. You know, philanthropy is best where risk is high, innovation is needed, where experimental models in journalism can be funded, like Velocidad, like Nexo Journal, uh, stuff that may be too risky for either commercial investors or other funders. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now, though, is a market failure for an incredibly important public good which is independent journalism. And that's where governments actually really need to step in and fund this public good, um, as they have done with healthcare or with education. And that's why we're so interested in setting up the International Fund for Public Interest Media, because it can be very problematic for states to fund media directly. You need to make sure that there are independent mechanisms and that full editorial independence is allowed to whoever's funded that people making the decisions about who they're funding in what way they're being funded are focused on the public interest and are not focused on politics or in corporate interest. And so philanthropy simply can't play that role of supporting and subsidizing the market failure. I mean, outside the US and Europe, it's really just Luminate, the Open Society Foundations, a handful of others, you know, whichever local millionaire wants to support the media, which is really a double-edged sword in many cases. And so philanthropy has a role to play, but it's really around risk, innovation, experimentation, not around long-term subsidy of, of this market failure. I do think the other trend that's compounding the need for something like the proposal that Nishant is backing is the fact that democracy is eroding around the world. And with democracy eroding around the world and the deliberate weakening of a free press by authoritarian leading politicians who were democratically elected and subsequently going on to undermine the very democracies that put them in power. And this whole fake news trend, which is basically, I don't like the truth. I don't, I don't want to hear it. And therefore, I'm going to brand it as anti-government, as fake, as lies, is a very, very scary trend. And it is a global trend. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we can get governments who care about democracy to invest in a pool of money to help independent media around the world, I think it would be a huge step forward. I think that's a really important point, Joyce, and we've made it before, others have made it, that you can't actually think about addressing the question of viability and sustainability of uh, public interest journalism without understanding and responding to the context in which that financial collapse is occurring. And that context is not just, I would argue, COVID-19-related escalation of a business model failure. It's also, of course, what you point out, Joyce, which is attacks on press freedom, the erosion of democracy that's happening in parallel with the undermining of journalism and where journalists and journalism, you know, become the targets of these sorts of attacks. I'd just like to hear from Renata again, as the only one of us currently really on the ground, slogging it out in very difficult circumstances where all of the points that Joyce just made, I'm sure, hit home. From your point of view, what is the greatest need at this moment to ensure that your organisation can keep publishing credible independent journalism? I mean, and I'll just point out here that the study that we've just published a snapshot from on journalism and the pandemic, which had many uh, Brazilian respondents replying even in, in English because the circumstances were such that they felt compelled to participate. You know, we, we saw there 
a figure of around 17% of those respondents indicating that their outlets had lost something in the order of uh, 75% of revenue. So it makes sense, therefore, that the greatest need that was being expressed was for financial support. But other needs expressed in parallel were around, you know, capacity to combat disinformation, assistance with mental health impacts of the pandemic and so on. So I'd just love to hear from you what you most need now and what you think your organisation most needs now. Well, it is in line with the results. It, it is certainly financial support. It was a very big hit. And one choice you can make is to cut your cost structure. So you, you cut your staff, cut hours, cut either quality or volume, and you might cut your model. It, it is really difficult. So you, you, what we have been trying is to increase the other side, the revenue side, so that our, our cash burn is not too high and we can survive. It brings a little bit of what Nishan said and what, uh, what Joyce said. This need for philanthropic investment or for some kind of, of support through not only hard time like this moment, but also at the beginning. Journalism is not really a low risk, high return type of, of, of investment. Uh, there is no, not much appetite, especially in, in regions like Latin America. It's not that, you know, that all those venture capital companies putting a lot of money on, on some media organizations in the US. It does not happen in our countries at all. There is no absolutely no funds for the, those things. And I believe something that is very important at this moment is for countries to have not only surviving media outlets, but really a vibrant ecosystem and an ecosystem that is not only also concentrated into three or four companies that have been there for a hundred years and belong to families and have had all sorts of potential relationships. It is very important that newcomers can enter and that they not only, the barriers to enter are certainly a lot lower nowadays with the with the internet and everything. But the whole model we were discussing before, it is really great to not de not to depend on ads and to try and, and get revenues from subscriptions. It, it is really great. But either ads or subscriptions, there is a, some leeway. You, you don't launch and all of a sudden you are fine and you have you know a, your subscribers base and your revenues but you need to have a cost structure that is big enough robust enough for you to produce something that makes sense for somebody to subscribe to and, and that is a very big challenge and for news organizations to appear to be created so that the ecosystem continues to you know to live in a healthy way and provide what we need as a public service in, in countries like ours, it's almost it's super important that there is some sort of philanthropic investment or, you know, that the market failure, either the government does not charge any taxes on labor or on, or on profits. Profits we don't make at the beginning, but the amount of money we pay on, on labor and we do everything absolutely by the book at Nexo, we could have broken even two years ago, and I mean it. Because that's your biggest cost as a, as a news organization. It's your people. It's your, also your biggest asset. But, you know, it is very challenging, uh, especially at these times when money is, is short for, for everybody and every sector to go through and to believe that exactly when democracy is at higher risk, we have all these challenges ahead of us. So, you know, resilience is, is super important. Just before we wrap, I've got a, a question I want to put to Nishant, which goes back to this idea of addressing market failure and I suppose ensuring that we don't end up in another state of dependency or codependency that you know results in us being back here in five years' time post-pandemic trying again to recalibrate. Maybe that's just inevitable. But one of the, the theories that does the rounds both within academic and civil society organisations is the need to either A, decouple from the platforms or B, <laughs> ensure that whatever funding is being given by the platforms is very much distant in a way that allows independence and integrity to be preserved from the organisations taking that money. I mean, I'm not necessarily convinced that decoupling is achievable <laughs> uh, or, you know, even necessary, but I would argue that there does need to be both increased transparency, accountability and distance. And at the same time, what many others have argued, including people like Anna Schifrin at, at Columbia University, is that, you know, this amount of money being given as much as it's, it's valued, obviously, by people like Renata and uh, Maria Ressa and others who enjoy that, that kind of support for, for defined activities, it's not nearly enough. You know, it's, no, it's nowhere near what they can afford to be contributing. And if we're talking about government regulation, 
what does that mean in terms of thinking about your fund and through relationships with the platforms, Nishant, of, you know, applying this sort of pressure, whether that's through governments or other means to ensure that the money that is given is really reflective of the kind of need and value that um, independent journalism and uh, public interest media provide. You know, so there's two things in there, right? There's one about decoupling and then there's another about how the money that they do offer should be channeled. So on decoupling, you know, there are efforts to decouple that do exist. Many journalism organisations have their own proprietary apps, for example, uh, where content is distributed. Email newsletters are increasingly resurgent. I believe it's 28% of people now in Belgium get their news via email each week. It's about a fifth in the US. And so, you know, that allows providers to provide a bespoke experience that people really value without some of the noise that comes on social media platforms. But it's going to be a journey if decoupling ever happens, and it probably will be a blended model for a very long time. So then the question is, you know, while we experiment with decoupling, then how do we ensure that the platforms that are providing support to journalism organizations can do so in a way that is in their interest and in the public interest. You know, so take Google's recent announcement, for example, of a billion dollars mm. by the Google News Showcase. You know, great that they're putting that kind of money in. A billion dollars is about 0.15% of their revenue projected mm. over the next three years. It's a small amount of money for them, but you know, potentially a decent amount for the industry. You know, it's interesting that it's not part of their core effort. It's a side product, the Google News Showcase. It's not Google News Search. It's not, you know, Facebook's news feed that we're talking about here. They're going to be earning $0 in advertising from the News Showcase, which may seem like a good thing. But in fact, it just shows that it's not a core part of their strategy, I think, because they are ultimately an advertising company. And secondly, you know, they choose who to partner with and they choose how that money is channeled rather than relying on public demand or the public interest for channeling that money. And so that's not ideal. They shouldn't be making those decisions. You know, they should be basing those decisions on either a market mechanism or on um, an independent mechanism that doesn't have the corporate interest in mind, that has public interest in mind. And that's, that's again, why we think the International Fund for Public Interest Media, which would be independently governed, which would ensure that no one single donor or corporate controls which organizations receive money or how much they receive, that you need a mission-driven organization to support a public good, not a shareholder-driven organization. And that's why, even as we experiment with decoupling, we, we need this international fund to allow media to be supported in ways that benefit the public. We've come to the end. I have one final question for each of you, actually. And it's a bit of a double header. So bear with me. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, but I suppose final thoughts that I'd like us to sort of leave this conversation on. What do you think is the most kind of critical issue regarding this debate around the, the financial viability of independent journalism that keeps you up at night? What's the one thing that most worries you? And then so that we don't all go away horribly depressed, what is the aspect of this conversation that is making you feel the most optimistic that journalism can come through this tricky period and actually avoid extinction? What keeps me up at night? There are many things that keep me up at night, but I would say the fact that there are news deserts all around the world is something that really concerns me, that there are communities not at all served by journalism. And I see this as part of this growing income inequality gap that is happening, and I find it very worrying because I do think it's another issue that does affect our democracies. Even in my own backyard, this is a huge issue. And the communities without journalism organizations are often the poorest ones where people are not investing in such things. They, they're the poor of the poor and they're being left behind. And this growing income inequality gap that's happening as a result of the pandemic is also exacerbating this. And we see that the people most affected by in our country by the pandemic are people who are black and brown and, and disproportionately hit by this pandemic. And I think the fact that they don't have a voice, they don't have people who are serving their communities is a very dangerous trend. So I think that that is something that worries me. And I'd like to see if there are ways that we can address the deserts. Otherwise, I think we have, we're creating huge pockets of 
of discontent of people who are not feeling that they are benefiting in any way from society. And it does concern me a lot. On the positive side, and I do have in my heart a lot of hope for our field, of course, I do think that we are a resourceful group. I do think that we've learned a lot over the last 15 years, a lot. And I do think that the price of entry is lower. The price of innovation is cheaper. (laughs) I do think that we can find some good solutions that maybe aren't the highest tech, but they're low tech, but they still serve our audiences. But I, I also think we're in a time of redefinition of journalism and our values to a little bit of an extent, which is, are we just reporting to the community or are we reporting for the community? And I think this push of reporting for the community and embracing the community is totally key. And we're going to see more and more of it. And I also feel that support for nonprofits, for all sorts of nonprofits that back journalism and also for particularly for those that do investigative journalism, it doesn't seem to be flagging right now, which I think is, is another good sign. But I do feel you know, I know this is a crucial time and I don't want to sound like Pollyanna and that everything is going to be okay. But I do feel that if you feel that journalists feel more passionate about their job or more committed to their job now, if you do see a rise in trust as a result of coronavirus and the life-saving information that journalists are providing, I think there's a way to tap into that and create new relationships, new products, as Nexto did, and really cement that relationship so that when we're in a healthier time, we'll come back and we'll have more and more subscribers and members and people who want want to support uh, journalism. Joyce, thank you very much. Um, That's quite an oasis there. It's quite a big oasis (laughs) in your desert of despair that you painted for us. (laughs) Renata, would you like to, to come in on this? What worries me very much and has been worrying me lately even more is the, this trust crisis, really. With a financial problem that the industry has been going through for years already and which has worsened now quite a lot, uh, especially for our big organizations, news outlets, who, which are, were very reliant on, on ad uh, revenues, I see a clear move, a desperate move, to raise revenues, to get revenues from places that are the limit of being questionable and that worries me very much because you know as i said before the public does perceive it and as much as it happens you know it's it's like it's like a restaurant it's a restaurant i need to decrease my costs or increase my revenues i need to regain my margin let's just buy lower quality mozzarella and make the pizza smaller you know just a little bit they won't notice what happens then is that we do notice always and we don't go to that restaurant anymore or we, you know, go less often. We try to find a new one or we complain. One of these. And on this industry, something very different happens when they do that. They harm the whole industry. Nobody else trusts none of us. That really is horrible. And, and you know what? The food, the pizza gets tastier. You know, they use more sensationalism. They use more catchy stuff. They, they use opinion without signaling it. It's really something that keeps me up at night. And I, I, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I don't see it really happening because with those things happening, the true consolidation of the industry, like, for example, the aviation industry, some consolidation will have to happen now because we know what happened. With that, actually, you know, those which may not be so productive may not be the ones which should be surviving and maybe were the ones to be acquired by other uh, organizations. That does not get to happen. And, and I think the whole industry loses with that and society, of course. So that, uh, that is the bad part. Uh, the good part, I believe, I'm very optimistic about that, is that I think the new generations, and I can say that because we do qualitative research with Nexus uh, readers and subscribers, and it's, it's a present uh, to listen to these young people and to see this generation completely understanding everything in the world and understanding specifically the need to pay for news and to support news organizations. That is super clear to them, to most of them, and that brings me a lot of optimism for, for the future, especially for this country. That's so encouraging. Before we go to Nishant, I just want to say this right now. I think the journalism and pizza project should be what comes next. <laughs> Nishant, your, your worst nightmare and your greatest hope. Yeah, the thing I'm most worried about is the continued attacks on the media by heads of state 
and state-sanctioned spokespeople. And that has a very strong link to financial viability. If you look at Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, when he went to attack Maria Ressa and Rappler, the first place he started was their investors and the people supporting them financially. And he tied up Rappler in lawsuits. He tied up their investors in lawsuits. And that created room for him then to propagate misinformation and his own narratives and undermine the media. Trump's doing the same thing. A recent study by Cornell found that out of the 38 million articles they analyzed in the first half of this year, Trump's comments were 38% of the articles that spread information were based on Trump's comments. This is a very active strategy to undermine the media and the financial viability of the media. And we have to fight back and we have to hold them to account. And ironically, we need the media to do that. What makes me optimistic? Honestly, talking to Renata and other entrepreneurs and journalists like her who are forging a new way um, and finding modes to keep doing their really important work. And so we really hope that Nexo thrives and that other innovative journalism organizations around the world uh, scale up and continue doing their work. Well, thanks very much to all of you. ICFJ's Joyce Barnath and Illuminate's Nishant Nalwani and Nexo's Renata Ritzi for sharing your experiences and insights. You've really given us, I think, a lot to think about, including the journalism pizza. <laughs> An image that will stand the test of time. In the next episode, <laughs> we'll be delving into the critical questions tied up with journalism and the disinformation crisis. And we have a fantastic panel lined up for that, including Mivin Babakar, the CEO of Full Fact, Melissa Fleming, the Undersecretary General for Global Communications at the United Nations, Sonny Sway, the founder of Frontier Myanmar, and Dr. Ethan Zuckerman from the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure. And I've got some homework for you before then. Download the new ICFJ and Tau Centre report on journalism and the pandemic, the one we talked about at the top of the show, which has some fascinating and, and certainly disturbing insights into journalism's experiences of COVID-19, including details about journalists' encounters with disinformation. And you can find that report at icfj.org. And your second task is to download the UN-published book, Balancing Act, Countering Disinformation While Respecting Freedom of Expression. I'm one of the co-authors and it digs into those really thorny issues around how to respond to disinformation while trying to preserve media freedom and our right to access information. So I'll tweet to links to both of those resources. You can follow me at Julie Pizzetti on Twitter. You're probably listening to this on the Undercurrents podcast feed. If you've liked what you've heard, there are over 70 previous episodes that you can work your way through, including one very interesting recent one with former director of communications in the Blair government, Alistair Campbell, talking about mental health in politics. Make sure, if you can, to subscribe and leave a review on your podcast app as it makes it easier for people to find us. And to keep up with the rest of Chatham House's work, you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House or visit our extremely exciting swanky new website <laughs> at chathamhouse.org. See you again soon. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>